Well, good morning. I uh, really appreciate you, brothers and sisters. It's good to be here once again. And uh, we're actually going to be in uh, Matthew 5, brother. <laughs> it's no problem. Uh, but this is uh, going to be a continuation from what I preached a couple weeks ago An Eye for an Eye, Part 2. If you would, um, just allow me to pray. Come with me to the Lord in prayer, please. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, uh, we set your word before us here, Lord, and we so thank you for your word, your revelation that you've given to us, Lord, by which we know truth. Uh, Lord, be lifted up here in this place and let your word be exalted above anything and everything. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Christ is worthy to be preached. I want to first uh, give a review of just a little bit of what we went over last time. First, let me read the text here, beginning in verse 38 of Matthew 5 through verse 42. You have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil... But whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law, and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh of thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. Well, we had uh, basically three points that we set out to cover uh, last time, and those were, in dealing with this scripture, those were the principle and purpose of this law, this principle, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, that's found in the Mosaic law. It is a direct quote from the law. Uh, the second point is the perversion of the principle, whether by the Pharisees or whether by us today. Uh, the third is the perspective of Jesus, seeing it through the divine lens. Last time we covered basically one and two, but wasn't able to get to three. So that's what we're going to focus on uh, this morning, Lord willing. But first, as way of review, uh, the, the, the law eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, is a good law. We went over that. How it's been misconstrued, one of the most probably misunderstood, misapplied principles in the entire Bible. It also is one of those principles that more than most exemplifies God's justice, God's holiness, God's goodness, and God's compassion. So this, uh, this where Jesus says, you have heard that it said, but I say unto you, that's repeated over and over again. This is like Jesus' code or his formula that he's dealing with in addressing this false religion, this false external religion that is merely a show of righteousness and he's exposing the inside as still wicked. Uh, he says to them, Oh, you say that because you don't commit the act of murder, then you're righteous. But I'm saying to you that you already murder in your heart because you're angry with your brother without a cause. And if the law not to murder wasn't there, you would be a murderer. It's the law that restrains you. And that law exists because there is sin in the world. 
And so let's, uh, let's look again at one of the verses. This is found uh, in three verses in the Old Testament, Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, and Deuteronomy 19. Uh, by way of review, I want to look at one of those again from Deuteronomy 19, verse 15 to 21. One witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity or for any sin, and any sin that he sinneth. At the mouth of two witnesses or at the mouth of three witnesses shall the matter be established. If a false witness rise up against any man to testify against him that which is wrong, then both the men between the whom the controversy is shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges." which shall be in those days. And the judges shall make diligent inquisition. And behold, if the witness be a false witness and hath testified falsely against his brother, then shall ye do unto him as he had thought to have done unto his brother. So shalt thou put the evil away from among you. And those which remain shall hear and fear and shall henceforth commit no more any such evil among you. And thine eye shall not pity, but life shall go for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. This is still for today. This is not abolished. We talked about how Matthew chapter 5, or the Sermon on the Mount, uh, he starts off dealing with the law in verse 17, think that I have not come to destroy the law of the prophets, but to fulfill the word fulfills to fill up, to render full, uh, not to just like, oh, it's, it's past now, it's time for something else. Not like a prophecy being fulfilled, um, but this is still in play today. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And you say, well, what is Jesus talking about then when he says, I say unto you, well, we're going to get to that. But the point that we talked about last week is, or sorry, two weeks ago, was that uh, this is for the law courts. Notice there in, in Deuteronomy 19, that he says in verse 18, and the, judges, and the judges shall make diligent inquisition and behold. So this is a law court setting. This is in accordance with Romans 13, that God has ordained government for a purpose. And what does it say there in Romans 13? For the punishment of the wicked, for evildoers, that the righteous have no need to fear of this. Um, but the government, the magistrates as it's called, is an ordained ministry of God. That's their ministry. It, it actually, a police officer is actually a minister of God, um, if it's in accordance with his word, that is. Uh, and so that's the point there. And this is a compassionate principle. Notice that this is no more, no less. Uh, an eye for an eye is a restraint on how far the punishment can go. This is... Uh, you know, if and, and understand that this is not a literal, necessarily a literal, he poked my eye out, I'm going to poke his eye out. This is just meaning, uh, like we talked about before, tit for tat. Um, it, it's the punishment must fit the crime. And this principle we talked about is played out all throughout Scripture. How 
how we see this in the disciplining of children, that the Bible says that he who uh, spares the rod hates his son. But then there's also, don't provoke your children to wrath. There is a balance there. You, you punish the child based on the offense and also remembering that he's a child. So there is equity here in this law, and it's a good. And so uh, this is not abrogating, Matthew 5 is not abrogating the law. Uh, Jesus never came to abrogate the law, and he did not do that in any way. And many people misunderstand this, and many people, especially in the modern era, I would say after the Age of Enlightenment, have seen this as Jesus is putting forth, he's replacing the Old Testament law with the Sermon on the Mount. And that's not at all what's happening. He's just bringing what he's doing, he's emphasizing the spirit of the law over the letter of the law. It doesn't abrogate the letter of the law, but he's emphasizing the spirit of the law. Okay, one more thing we talked about last week was we need to address again how the law relates to us Christians. And we find that in 1 Timothy. Let's see, just a second. So we looked at the Old Testament. And we find in 1 Timothy, uh, is it chapter 1? Yeah, 1 Timothy chapter 1. Verse 8, But we know that the law is good, if a man use it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless, the disobedient, for the ungodly, for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men-stealers, for liars and perjured persons. And if there be any other such, any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which, has, which was committed to my trust." So we see there, first of all, he starts off saying, but we know the law is good if a man use it lawfully. So there is a direct implication that the law can be misapplied and often is misapplied. To the one who is a Christian that is born again, the letter of the law doesn't apply in the sense that the condemnation is not there. Um, I don't need a law that tells me not to murder because my nature's been changed. I'm no longer apt to murder I'm no longer apt to be in this entire list of sins. This doesn't mean that the law isn't useful for us. Uh, it's good for us to learn, for know God, to know God's character, um, to uphold justice, and to have instructions to live holy lives. Um, but we're not under its condemnation. The law doesn't press down upon us anymore. Um, we have liberty from it. Notice that it's also... There is a direct connection between the law of God and the gospel there in that scripture. And he's, because he says there that 
the law is for any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was committed to my trust. Anything that is contrary to the gospel, anything that's outside of Christ is under the condemnation of the law, is under the reproach of the law. So, that's the Christian's relationship to the law. And we see that uh, an eye for an eye in the Old Testament, this uh, is, it is righteous, it is good, it's still in effect today, and it is, um, it's in the court of law. That's its proper place. In our hearts, it doesn't work out the same way. This eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth is not meant for us to use in our personal relationships. And that's what the Pharisees had been doing. They had been using this as a, a license to extract personal vengeance on individuals. And Jesus is correcting that. Now, it does have a place in our hearts in the sense that we as Christians should love justice and love the law of God, but this is not how we are to view our personal relationships. It's not how to, we're to view the relations with our neighbor, with our fellow man. So, the perversion of the principle and the teaching basically is that they were using this as a means for gain, to get back at people And they said, we're allowed to do this because the law says this. But they leave a lot out. We have perverted this scripture in that we view it almost as, especially in this modern evangelical era, as we say, we have this idea that, oh, that was that old bloodthirsty Old Testament and Jesus is just, you know, he's changing that and bringing uh, bringing that out and, and uh, calling us away from that. And that's not, what, that's not what's happening. Um, we, we tend to, in, in, in our day and age, dilute and diminish uh, this principle, among others. So finally we deal with this third point, the perspective of Jesus and seeing it through this divine lens. And allowing Jesus to take our glasses of corruption off as we see dimly and put on this divine viewpoint that he is uh, bringing out. So let's remember the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount, which I already discussed, about he's exposing internal sin. He's showing that man's ways are opposite of God's ways. The law comes into bear, and, and, and the law is there for that reason. Because our are prone to sin. Understand that the Sermon on the Mount is not a code of ethics. Now we're talking about the context of the Sermon on the Mount, and, and, and specifically these verses. It's not a code of ethics, a kind of... A new law to replace the Mosaic law. It's dealing and emphasizing with the Spirit over the letter. Too often, we pluck scriptures out of the Bible, and this is one of those that gets cherry-picked a lot. Too often, we pluck scriptures out 
of the Bible or from the Sermon on the Mount and use it to make a case for a certain issue or for a certain doctrine. Let's say Christian pacifism. Funny that we're dealing with that this morning. Uh, But nevertheless, that's the issue that many have taken using this scripture. Well, we can never do this with the Sermon on the Mount. We must take it as a whole in a complete context. So let me get into a couple things on how we deal with context when we preach the Bible and when we study the Bible. There's a thing called hermeneutics, and we basically have, for simplification, I'll put it this way, we basically have three levels of context that we deal with. There's the overarching biblical context that is from the, the whole Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. That, the whole message of the Bible has a context. Then you narrow it down into the context of the specific book you're dealing with. Let's say the Gospel of Matthew. Then you narrow it down further to the group of scriptures you're dealing with. Let's say the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5 to Matthew 7. Now, remember, the chapters and verses were added later, so we can't necessarily use chapters to divide uh, a certain group of scriptures, but they are useful for study and so that I can tell you where to look something up. Um, But that's how we deal in context. So, that's basically, simplistically put, hermeneutics. There's a lot of other levels of context, but for our uh, situation here now, I'm going to leave it at that. So, we have to apply proper context. All of you have heard that. Context is king. That's repeated over and over. So many times, this scripture gets pulled out of context. These, these uh, from verse 38 on to verse 42, and so many others within the Bible, and especially the Sermon on the Mount. So, if number one, if your interpretation of a certain scripture leads you to hold a ridiculous or impossible uh, position, it must be a wrong interpretation. It's categorically wrong. Um, And it's most likely totally out of context. There are levels of context to apply, like we just said. So if we take this verse and we say, uh, well, we're supposed to resist evil, period as if Jesus said nothing after that, that leads us to an impossible and ridiculous position to hold. Uh, We can't do that. That's not possible. Um, We would live in a totally um, dystopian society if we did that. Number two, if your interpretation directly undermines other scriptures to the point of making them void, um especially if it undermines or makes void an overarching biblical concept that's found throughout the Bible, uh, then your interpretation is wrong and out of context. Two simple ways to know if how we're viewing the Scripture is the right way or not. Um, so, and, and this has been done with the Scripture. One of the most famous is uh, the, Rush, the great Russian author Tolstoy. He, he had pronounced his Christian faith. This guy is the author of a, um, one of the greatest, considered one of the greatest novels in history, uh, War and Peace. And he read this verse, and he, he read the Sermon on the Mount, and he concluded that we need to get rid of all police, all military, all soldiers, 
um, because this prohibits resisting evil. Um, and so we need to, he said we need to just take the Lord at his word and get rid of those things. We are not to resist evil. This led him later in life to have a view of what was called, uh, not even really a thing, Christian anarchism. He deduced that uh, because wars are fought between nations, then if we got rid of nations and governments, we wouldn't have any war. And that's simply not true. That's ridiculous and an impossible position to hold, isn't it? And so that cannot be the right interpretation of this scripture. This cannot possibly be a scripture that forbids ever resisting evil, ever opposing evil. So what exactly is the Lord teaching us here in verse 39, which says, But I say unto you that you resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. Resist not evil. Well, the Lord does indeed say resist not evil there. And the word, the Greek word resist, uh, lines up right equivalent, uh, equal with our English word. It simply means to oppose. Don't oppose evil. That's what he's saying. Now, Tolstoy and others have had the perspective or the view that that doesn't have a qualifier. That he just, it's like Jesus said, hey guys, don't resist evil. He drops the mic and he walks off the stage. But that's not what he did. That's not what he taught. Let's look at a few cross-reference verses. Uh, let's first start out with um, a pretty big one. And that's Romans 12, verse 17. I'm actually going to go through Romans 13, verse 4. So Romans 12, beginning in verse 17. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome evil, but overcome evil with good. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth the sword. He beareth not the sword in vain. For he is a minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. So firstly, there in this group of scriptures, um, this is dealing with when you are reviled, when you are... Um, put to shame, or you're, you are caused suffering from someone, 
Recompense to no man evil for evil. You're not going to overcome evil with more evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. This is, this is how we're relating to our fellow man. Understand. If it is possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Ecclesiastes says there's a time for war. There's a time for peace. If it's possible, if, if, there, if, a, a, if a reconciliation can be reached, by all means reach it. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves. We, don't have, we, we should not have a, a heart or an attitude as Christians of vengeance. I'm going to get you back. You'll see. But leave place unto wrath. God takes care of that, doesn't he? He says, vengeance is mine. He says that here, and this is a quote from the Old Testament. He's saying that as he owns it. It's his possession. I own vengeance. It belongs to me. And we are not to rob God of that. And then we get into loving our enemies. If thine enemy hunger, feed him. Now we go into chapter 13, and it's the same vein of thought. There's an equal flow here. And he talks about, okay, God is an avenger. How does he avenge? He uses means. In this life, how does he use, what are those means? The the magistrates, the the, the authorities. Um, They are to punish wicked they're not doing anything. If we're not doing anything wrong, we have nothing to fear. Uh, a couple of years ago when the lockdowns were going on and COVID was all the rage back then, uh, I was still going out and preaching and a police officer approached me and said, hey, you got to wear a mask if you're out. There's a city ordinance. If you're out in public, you have to wear a mask. I said, sir, I'm here to preach. I can't wear a mask. I said, I'm not going to wear a mask. I said, look, I believe that your position is ordained by God uh, you are a minister of God to punish the evildoers, but I'm not doing anything wrong. And that basically freed me up. He said, okay, well, let me call the uh, headquarters or whatever and see what we can do. And it was resolved. He said, okay, you don't have to wear a mask, but just stay, you know, five feet over there. Don't get it close to anybody. So that's what happened. All right, let's look at um, 1 Corinthians 6, 7. Okay. Now, therefore, there is utterly a fault among you because ye go to law one with another. Why do you not rather take wrong? Why do you not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? In this verse alone, um, we, we can already see what Jesus is talking about to an extent. Um, the, Paul is rebuking these, these people of the Corinthian church and saying, you guys are offended over these little things and you're going to law and you're, and you, you, you're taking your brother before the unbelievers to try and settle, settle your differences. Why can't some of you just suffer? Why can't you just lay down, lay your rights aside and, and, and suffer? Why can't you just be willing to be defrauded sometimes? 
That's the attitude of Christ. That's the attitude of of the, the men of God throughout the ages. And that's a key to what we're getting at here. Let's look at what uh, one of the other apostles says through the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter uh, chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another, love as brethren. Be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise, blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called that ye should inherit a blessing. So there's a blessing in following this. Um, this is all fits together. I I love how the Bible never contradicts itself. There is an even flow of truth throughout all the scriptures. Um, It's not like the word of man where you you read something. I mean, even when you're studying a secular point, you can read something. This guy says, this is the best way. And somebody else says something totally different. That's the problem with the internet is you could find information and then another uh, next day you find information that contradicts what you just learned the other day. But it's not like that with God. There's this even flow of truth here that we are to set ourselves aside in these situations. And when we are put to shame by someone or dishonored or, or we're caused suffering, legitimately, you know, us not being wrong but we're being defrauded or or you know we're not deserving it but our you know our first inclination isn't to do that it's to strike back but this even flow of truth here through these scriptures is saying that can't be your first inclination your first inclination needs to be take it take it Take it to the Lord in prayer. That is also an act of faith. Because if we honestly believe that God is our avenger, if we honestly believe that He cares about us, and that we're suffering unjustly for whatever cause, ultimately He will make it right. It says there in, that, in, in 1 Peter 3 there, there's a blessing that comes, there's an inheritance of a blessing that comes with that. So this is an act of faith. So, like I said, the word there, resist, it, the, the Greek is true to what the English rendering is. The word is, Anthistemi, to oppose, to stand against. But the one who holds the ridiculous position of this verse, meaning never to oppose evil, would have to say that Jesus' statement there has no qualifier. That he just said it, dropped the mic, and left. That's not what happened. 
just never oppose any evil under any circumstance? No. So is there a qualifier? Most certainly there is. He says it right after this statement. He tells us the qualifier. The Lord says, resist not evil in this way. Whosoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him take thy cloak also. Whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn thou not away. He doesn't say there, uh, if a murderer shows up here at your door, just let him on in. Just let him, you know, have his way with your wife and children. He doesn't say there if uh, gangs and mobsters take over a city and the drug dealers are just running amok. He doesn't say just let them have their way. No, he is dealing with our relationships to fellow man. And there's something more deeper going on there too uh, that I want to share with you. So, he tells us how not to resist evil. This also lines up with the other scriptures that we looked at and fits together perfectly. An even flow of truth. It lines up with the overall overarching biblical context. When you're reviled, revile not again. When someone says a harsh word to you, God bless you. Especially when someone mocks you or calls you a nasty name because of Jesus, you ought to tell them, thank you. Because that has given me the opportunity to identify with the Lord Jesus. He does not say, resist not evil when your family's welfare and life is at risk. He's not saying, resist not evil when evil is controlling a society. He doesn't say, just let it go. If there's no qualifier on the statement, if it's just resist not evil, then none of you should have locked your car doors when you came in here. In fact, you should not have only left them unlocked, you should have left the keys in the ignition. That way, if someone wants to steal it, you're not resisting evil. You just say, hey, here you go. None of us should have locked our homes when we left this morning. Just to make sure we're not opposing evil in any way. You see how ridiculous that is? That's a ridiculous position. So we see clearly that the statement, but I say unto you that you resist not evil, is qualified by what he says following. You're not to resist, oppose evil in this way. In what way? As an individual within your personal relationships and how you relate to your fellow man. This is not about Christian pacifism. How you relate 
as a citizen of a state or a nation. If you want to know how you are to deal as, a, as your relation is to your, your country or your state, you need to find other scriptures. This is not talking about that. There are other things in the Bible that you could go to, but not this. That's not even brought up here. He's only speaking of the Christian individual and how he is to conduct himself in personal relationships. So this does not prohibit a Christian from serving in the military or the police or from defending his family or from opposing those who would defame the name of God. It does not prohibit that. This teaching is much deeper than that. You see, when we reduce it to things like that, we're actually guilty of legalism. Because we're saying like Tolstoy, apply this principle this way, and then there's righteousness. All of a sudden, righteousness will just appear. No, it's much deeper than that. This is what it really deals with. Something that is the root of all other sin. This teaching, this principle, deals with self. Ultimately, this has to do with denying self. Now, it is at this point that I must point out that this teaching is only meant for the Christian individual, not the unbeliever. Here's why. How can an unbeliever begin to operate in this way? This is why true Christianity cannot be reduced to following a code of ethics or a legalistic set of rules because to even begin to apply this teaching, one needs a new heart. A new nature. This teaching, this level of self-denial can only be followed by one who's born again. It's totally antithetical to the natural man. It's totally antithetical to the world. And if we promote this teaching to be followed by unbelievers, then we promote legalism. No, the unbelievers are under law. I also present to you that Jesus qualifies this statement, resist not evil, again, later in the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 16, in verse 24, where Jesus says, come on, y'all know it, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This has to do with denying self. Hard pill to swallow. Man, it's got real quiet in here. This is all about self-denial. Verses 38 through 42. This teaching zeroes in on self-denial. The world says, believe in yourself. Jesus says, deny yourself and follow me. Antithetical to the world. Opposite, totally opposite. 
This teaching is totally opposite of the natural man and the world. I must die that Christ may live in me. Christ can't live in me and His glory shine through me unless I deny myself and I die. 2 Corinthians 4. Second Corinthians four, five through eleven. <clears throat> For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. To have Jesus reign in us, we can't have self reign in us. Galatians 2.20 I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. A beautiful verse. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It honestly comes down to one fundamental truth and that is that i am not worth living for but jesus christ is if i live for self i live a life of pure vanity i live a life that is fading away and has no purpose whatsoever if i live a life for christ if i deny myself and live for jesus for His glory, live to promote His righteousness, His Word, then that is a life that means something. If we can take this issue of self-denial to heart, then we can begin to love how God loves. More and most importantly, we can begin to love God with all heart, with all soul, with all mind and strength. If we do not take this issue of self-denial to heart, then we inadvertently make it all about ourselves. It's just, that's our default position. And we run the risk of making our religion all about us too. 
to suit our own desires. Using godliness for a superficial gain. These are the things the Bible warns us about. Becoming men-pleasers instead of servants to Christ. And I'm telling you, friends, the way to avoid all of that, to avoid all those ditches, begins with denying self. And that's the issue, the fundamental issue that Jesus is getting to here in these verses from Matthew 5. This is a fundamental teaching of Christianity. This is nothing new. This is totally orthodox. Serving others has to do with denying self. Enduring persecution has to do with denying self. Enduring suffering with humility has to do with denying self. Loving your neighbor has to do with dying to self. The world tells us to simply love yourself. And you'll feel good. Love yourself. The Bible says we already love ourselves. We don't need to be told that. That's human nature. The Bible tells us to love our neighbor as ourself. That's not human nature. But it ought to be our nature. It ought to be uh, our position as Christians. Now, that doesn't mean that when we're saved, a, a switch flips, and all of a sudden, man, I'm just self-denying to the nth degree. There is a sanctification process that happens. And I'll tell you that I repent before you all in the Lord that I am guilty of not committing myself to this principle. And, but the Lord has shown me in preparing for this sermon um, that this is really important. And in many ways, I view a new chapter in my life in understanding this in its proper context. Well, Jesus resisted evil. He did so when he overturned the tables of those selling goods inside the temple. He made a whip. He, he handmade a whip and chased them out with it. He didn't just go pick one up that somebody had. He took the time. Man, he twisted that thing up. He made it. And then he chased them out of the temple with it. That's in John 2.15. He resisted evil when he told Peter, Get behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense to me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Matthew 16, 23. We resist evil when we preach the gospel. We resist evil by living the Christian life. By saying no to the world, no to the devil. No, I'm not going to compromise on that. We must resist and oppose evil every single day. We must promote justice. For God's glory. Not for the purpose of our own glory. When Jesus was personally attacked, He didn't revile back. But when God's honor and God's word was attacked and became under fire, he fired back. We so easily get caught up in self, promoting ourselves. We make our priorities about ourselves. 
And this serves as a roadblock to what we're called to be as Christians. To love others and love God. There is a tendency, and just like in many other things, to over-spiritualize these scriptures and, and this principle and teaching. This teaching is deep and spiritual, but it's also very practical. Within our relationships, just think about the relationships that are closest to you. Your relationship with your husband or your wife your, your, uh, your brothers, your sisters, your mom, your dad, your friends, the people here, each other in our church. Just think about those relationships that are closest to you and work your way out. Um, within those relationships, within our relationships, our top priority should not be ourselves but others. With, with this being said, you know, I've heard it said that when Jesus is talking about here, when he says if someone is smiting you on the right cheek, turn to the left also, that he's really talking about uh, somebody slapping you with words. Well, that may be, but I don't think it's just narrowed down to that. I can't say that. I, I believe that, that it is that for sure, but to say it's limited to that is a stretch. I think he can actually is talking about literally being slapped. In some cases, under certain circumstances, I think that that could be true. The main issue is still self-denial, though. <clears throat> that never changes throughout any of these instances or, or circumstances that we face and that he's talking about. The main issue is self-denial, being willing to endure hatred and not hating in return. Uh, being willing to suffering or willing to... to to suffer and be caused to suffer. Um, to be willing to lose our dignity. How undignified is it to be slapped in the face? I think that's one reason why Jesus is using this, uh, you know, this example. To be slapped in the face, that's extremely undignified. It, it, it's actually been said uh, that in the old times, slaves would rather be uh, whipped than slapped in the face by their master because that was just a, a, a huge disrespect, dishonor. I mean, it was an embarrassment, everything. Um, and notice that he says, uh, if you're slapped on the right cheek, which that means that if you're going to be slapped on the right cheek, they're using the back of their hand, not the open palm. And that's an even more, historically, uh, in tradition, that's an even more uh, dishonoring, to be slapped with the back of the hand. Like you're just, bam, you're not even worthy of, my, of, of me listening to you or any of my respect at all. Just how undignified that is. Being willing to lose our dignity. Being willing to be embarrassed. Now the world treats people like that. That's how the world treats people. The Christian doesn't treat people like that. We shouldn't, we shouldn't be slapping people and 
you know, acting like, oh, yeah, what are you going to do now? I mean, I'm not going to repay you in that same way. The world retaliates. You're not going to disrespect me. Jesus is saying, don't have that attitude. That is an extreme level of self-denial. That's a high calling. Denying self is also connected to the gospel in so many ways. Let's be reminded that Jesus condescended. Philippians 2, 1 through 11. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels of mercy, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye may be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men." And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, Jesus left heaven. The King of kings, the King of glory, the Son of God. He was in heaven where there is a place where there's no need, no strife. Uh, He didn't get tired there. He didn't get weak. He uh, He wasn't rejected there. He left that place and condescended to this place where he faced all those things, um, he condescended. He was willing to lose his dignity. He was willing to let them spit upon him and do all of these travesties to us because he was denying himself and loving us. That's who our Lord is, and that's his character. And so how can we... If our Lord, our Master, acted in such a way, how can we just all the time be walking around demanding our rights? And you're not going to treat me like this. Well, see how that's connected to the gospel. See how that's connected to the justice 
It's such a beautiful thing here. We have everything at play. The justice of God, the righteousness, the holiness, the love, the mercy, the compassion, the equity of God. The gospel that is there. The law is there. God has brought it all together in this one principle. So let's go forth, friends and uh, brothers and sisters, and be determined to deny self. God bless you.